Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 46, What Happened Was. Welcome to History Against the Grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner. With me, as always, is my co-host, Chris Paget. And uh, how is the summer treating you, Chris? Well, hello, everybody. Uh, the summer is, is going great. You know, when I woke up yesterday morning, uh, the place where I live has a pool, and there were... Uh, Gosh, like a you know a whole roll call of rules, and um, you know restrictions on on when and how and with who and where uh, the pool might be used. But you know I woke up this morning and it was all gone. Josh, uh, there were no more rules. You don't even it's not even required that you wear a face mask anymore. So so tell me something. What what happened? Everything changed. It just took twelve hours, but everything changed. <laughs> California is now an open state. Which, you know, actually, we probably should mark this because the podcast began with everything shutting down. And here we are, you know, just past June 15th yep. uh, and the state is opening up again. Hopefully not just to close again at some point. But uh, it, it is something worth, you know, mentioning at least celebrate. It's hard to celebrate given, you know, all we've been through in the, in the, the past 15 months, 16 months, whatever it's been now. But but it, it's something right. It's uh, it's it's a big change. And uh, I, I'm still not sure how I'm going to deal with it, right? You know, I'm, I'm going to go in the store without a mask on, that kind of stuff. I'm still processing how I want to how I want to address that. Yeah, there's a whole psychology, you know, left over. You know, it's it's difficult. Yeah. It's one thing to, to remove the signs or something, but it's another thing to train your mind, you know, to, to think differently. I don't know. For my part, um, it was basically just going to be a, a cannonball into the pool because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, look, I mean, in California, there are you know, few more serious measures of where things stand than, uh, you know, than, than swimming pools, right? Yeah, right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I got to figure something's changed. But I, I totally agree with you. You know, as we uh, we go downtown and a lot of the vendors, restaurants, bars, etc., cetera, uh, you know, coffee shops, cafes, they're all, you know, reeling from this thing. They've, they've been working, you know, without out, outdoor seating, Mm-hmm. And and it's actually been kind of nice because, you know, streets have been blocked off, yeah. as we've said. And I'm really hoping that, you know, whatever getting back to normal is supposed to mean that, that we don't actually preserve some of the, you know, cool changes that have occurred uh, as a result of this whole process. Um, but uh, it'll be, yeah, I think psychologically it'll be an interesting kind of maybe baby steps at time back I, into. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the weird thing is, I mean, as you were saying, you know, so yesterday things were not safe and now today things are, you know, the, the, just how how uh, definitive it is that, that one day it's not okay and then the next day it is okay. It's a little jarring to try to process that. Um, but uh, I think I think we'll, we'll, we'll manage bit by bit. Maybe I'll just start lowering my mask, you know, a fraction of an inch at a time. And then, you know, by, by August, it'll be around my chin. And uh, then, I'll, then I'll know the time has come. Well, I'm clearly not in mid-season form, you know, because my neighbor said hello to me uh, down in the parking garage. And 
I must have talked to him for 30 minutes without taking a breath. You know, it, it was like, I, you know, it was more than he bargained for, I'm pretty yeah. sure. And, uh, you know, he, he would he only want to do a virtual handshake, you know, because we were introducing right. uh, ourselves to one another, uh, having just met, you know, from behind our masks, if you will. And, but but a virtual handshake, I got that, and and yet I, I know I over-talked him. And so all I can say is, you know, I'm not in mid-season shape yet. It's going to take me a while to get the, you know, my social skills, uh, fast-twitch social skills back to where they need to be. Right. Some days you'll be under-talking, people are going to look at you funny, <laughs> and then next, next day you'll be regaling him with your life story. <laughs> yeah, we'll, I was we'll noticing... His nonverbals finally told me he was ready to move yep. on, you know. But, was it slowly backing away? Was that the... <laughs> exactly. But uh, I got to tell you, just for our fan base, who we all know are just as rabid about uh, the other midsummer barometer, namely baseball, uh, that uh, our Giants, hey, Josh, they're still in first, aren't they? Still in first, yeah. I mean, at a certain point, then it's not, it's not a fluke at a certain point, right? Or did I just jinx the whole season by saying that? I, I might need to edit that out. <laughs> No, I, I think you're in the, the clear. Record. I think yeah. you're in the clear here. Um, right. I think they. I think they're legitimate, insofar as you know we've reached this point of the season and they've managed to do things like well, last night, for example, coming from behind to win a ball game by scoring runs. Yeah, it's it's a, uh, it's 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 incredible, and yeah, it's a uh, it makes it really feel like summer. I will say, right, to have exciting baseball. Um, with a good team that's fun to follow, actually. Um, so yeah, it's it's, uh, it's going to get me through the the hot days, the dog days of summer is watching watching this team. You know, there's a there's another scandal of brewing. You know, as as the major league uh, announced, MLB announced uh, that uh, they're going to start enforcing, and they mean it this time, enforcing the rules against applying foreign substances to the baseball, because as you know, there's been talk lately of how pitchers have taken to using something called spider tack uh, yeah. which is a uh, a product that uh, i guess apparently was used first by guys in the world's strongest man competition you have to carry you know these massive stones and it yeah. gives them grip but it also gives pitchers grip and they can give a greater spin rate to the ball which makes the ball do uh, funny and interesting things that of course make it harder for uh, batters to to then hit but uh, I wonder, are there any rules like that for podcasting, Josh? Are there any banned substances we need to know about? I've got spider grip all over my face right now, so I hope, <laughs> I hope not. It helps me stay close to the mic, so. And you don't want your hand slipping across the keypad at an untoward no, moment, right. you know? Yep. So I yep. think we're Instead in the clear. It, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, there's no, not a lot of regulations about podcasting, it turns out. It, it, I mean, what we figured out is that literally anybody can start a podcast, so um, I guess they haven't. <laughs> put many rules on on what we can and can't do we are living proof living of proof. the perfectly democratic entry into the world of podcasting uh i i tell you you know as we talk about things that have tracked over the last year uh what we call the history of now we uh we've been you know sort of narrating recently this business which I guess you're sort of tempted to what? Sort of uh, shrug it off as, well, you know, the culture wars got to be the culture wars. But now in 15 states, apparently by one count, there's either um, uh, legislation on tap or, 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 or actual legislation that's been enacted uh, regarding what teachers can and cannot say about various and sundry weighty matters in the classroom, including, well, for example, race. 
what do you think about this ongoing, uh, what I'm calling, Josh, the march of folly to try and legislate and control, therefore, what teachers have to say about controversial subjects, controversial for some at least, right. uh, in the classroom. What do you, is, it well, time to, is it time to take this seriously? I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's the perfect topic for this podcast. So I guess we can thank them for that. Uh, but mm -hmm. that's all I want to thank them for because you're right that you, you don't even, you know, it doesn't, it's not serious on the one hand in that they don't really, it's hard, you know, it's this thing, are they cynical or stupid? It's probably actually some of both, but, um, mm -hmm. but you can't really have a conversation about, you know, critical race theory with, with, you know, these ghouls in these various state legislators. And now actually, uh, I just saw Tom Phyllis, I think, is that his name? Uh, from North Carolina, the senators trying to do something similar on the federal level to uh, restrict teaching of, of 1619 in the classroom as, as well. But, um, you know, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what critical race theory is. They don't have, you know, a deep understanding of American history that you can, you can, you know, bring facts to the table and convince them with the weight of your facts against their facts and this sort mm -hmm. of thing. It's, it's almost a joke to them. Um, and so, you know, to, to that extent, it's hard to see it as, as something you can have a good faith conversation about. Because it's hard to have a good faith conversation when one side cares and the other side is just saying stuff because they know it'll get a reaction. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as you as you point out, when you have actual legislation, you know, passing through these state legislators, being at least you know, uh, you know uh, suggested at the federal level as well, it's it's more than a joke. It's more than just trolling, right? This is this is an attack on on you know actual freedom, the, the you know the basic freedom of being able to, to tell the story of this country in, in the classroom. And, you know, it, this is about a lot of kinds of information, but it's mainly about history um, mm -hmm. and what kind of history can be taught, what kind of history should be taught. Um, won't somebody think of the children is, is probably the other way to uh, think about this new mass panic about uh, critical race theory, 1619. Um, they're doing it just for the children, right? All for the kids, that's right. Like the Jerry Lewis Labor Day telethon. It's all about right. the kids. You know, look, um, yeah, in Arizona, for example, they, the so-called biased teaching bill uh, promises to fine teachers for discussion of these controversial issues as spelled out. Uh, according to the language of the bill, Arizona teachers could face a $5,000 penalty, which amounts to what, about half our annual salary? For, for <laughs> yes. uh, Arizona teachers could face a $5,000 penalty if they allow classroom discussions on controversial topics such as racism. Now, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, for his part, was noncommittal on the bill, uh, which may uh, get to his desk, after all, if the Arizona Senate takes up the measure. He said he wasn't, uh, or that he doesn't want teachers to be punished. Imagine staking out that territory, mm -hmm. you know, as a politician. Let me first right. say, I don't want to punish teachers. That's a courageous stand, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finally, he someone's want, standing up for us. He promises not to burn witches and punish teachers or something. <laughs> uh, but added the state, Arizona, needs to be sure that, quote, proper lessons are learned and taught at school. Proper lessons. All right. That's where you, you cue the Jaws music, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then the uh, Arizona state legislator, um uh, who was sort of behind the bill, said that, that she uh, 
likewise, she chairs the House Education Committee in Arizona, uh, that uh, what they were trying to do was to eliminate discussion, basically, uh, that would tend toward these, what they consider to be um, kind of what, a kind of propagandizing, I guess, in the classroom right. on issues of, of, of race and such. So she did happen to say, however, that we all acknowledge, quote, we all acknowledge those things happened. Mm, okay. So, that's so no, that's interesting. So we can acknowledge, for example, that certain things happened, but we just can't talk about them, apparently. Is that <laughs> right? Is that <laughs> so uh, here I found an outline or, or a, a headline I think you can appreciate. You know how we did New York Times or, or Onion? Yeah, right. You can tell me which one. New school curriculum, just six straight hours staring slack-jawed at American flag. <laughs> <laughs> New York Times uh, or Onion? <laughs> I think that's the Onion. But, uh, it is, But indeed. it's not that far from the truth, really, right? <laughs> oh, uh, well, yeah, you wonder what acknowledging but not discussing actually means in this case, you know. And uh, we'll post a, uh, I know a piece we both like from uh, Salon by Amanda Marcotte, who takes this uh, conversation, you know, I think to the core uh, as she discusses what she calls right-wing, uh, you know, racist fear-mongering. And, and she even uses uh, an old phrase I hadn't heard in a while, agitprop. You know, uh, which is a great word. Um, uh, Amanda writes, you know, with so many white people across the country in a total freak out over critical race theory, it appears few, if any of them, could even explain what it actually is. And so, uh, as Marcotte writes, it's what she calls a cleverly constructed right wing troll, which combines in the case of critical race theory, she says two uh, key buzzwords on the right, critical race and theory, all of which, right, are culture war uh, hot button tropes uh, for the right. And she says, when you put them all together into a single phrase, what you get is what she called a Voltron of racist paranoia. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like what. Uh, yeah, I like that, that that phrase there. It's, you know, we, we've seen we've seen this in various forms, you know, these are these are scare tactics. Um, I remember this has kind of gone away, but there was a while where conservatives kept talking about uh, the Frankfurt School. That was like their their bogeyman, the Frankfurt right. School. Right. Um, none of you know nobody could say what that was or why it mattered, but but it was scary and it sounded foreign and it's got you know kind of a Jewish. It sounds kind of Jewish too, and that's that's also um, mm -hmm. you know fits in with their their stuff. So you know this is this is very much fits in with a, a, a broader story of these kind of moral panics about. Um, you know, new left-wing, you know, conspiracies to, to turn our children into, uh, I don't know, Marxist revolutionaries, something like that. Is that that's where the end game is here? Yeah, somewhere as they define uh, what far left radicalism, I think. is. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. OK. I think Joe Biden, Joe Biden is the far left radical. Yeah. Leader. Yeah. And the American political spectrum, you know, from uh, you range the political ideology scape from A to B. You know, it's right. not a it's not a wide spectrum, but yeah, <laughs> <No>, it isn't. <laughs> well, so you know, as much as as we like to kind of snark snark about it, uh, we acknowledge then that there is, of course, a fight worth having here. Teachers 
uh, in response to this, uh, put on uh, last week uh, a National Day of Action, 20 cities across the country, uh, petitions and pledges circulating uh, that we'll post again on, on our website that you can, uh, you know, if you're an educator and if you want to join in, you know, can stand, uh, you know, in, in, in solid rank against, you know, these cynical efforts, as you say, Josh, to just, you know, manipulate voter base and to fan the, uh, the flames, you know, the eternal flames of culture war uh, in this country. I guess on the one hand, we could say it's job security for us. It's certainly been yeah. a boon to the, the podcast. But as, you know, as one writer put it, you know, they've appropriated, conservatives have appropriated this thing. Uh, this is Sean Illing writing for Vox, by the way, have appropriated this thing as a convenient catch-all to describe basically any serious attempt to teach the history of race and racism. So in honor of these good conservative salt of the earth bastards, what are we going to talk about today on today's episode, Josh? We're going to well, avoid all the controversial stuff, you figure? We, yeah, yeah, as usual, we're going we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna to tread lightly on, about history. As we move on to segment two, um, what I want to do is talk a little bit about narrative construction, the way that in many ways power and narrative go hand in hand, that where there's a power structure, there's a story that justifies uh, and, and makes sense of that power structure. And I want to do it by talking about um, this, a, a subject that's very close to my heart because it's what I wrote my dissertation about, and that is the kind of ideological problems of the Spanish Empire and their own struggles with what I call narrative chaos in the early decades of the Spanish-American Empire. Oh, can't wait. Let's get to it. You got a storyline fever, storyline flu. Apparently impairing your point of view. It's making horseshit sound true to you. Now it's impacting how you're acting too. Now it's impacting how you're acting too. All right, so as we head into segment two, uh, I first want to just say a little bit about narrative. I know we've, we've talked about this before, but in, in my mind, narrative is fundamental to the operation of human communities. Um, if you think back to some of the earliest human communities, we talked about this with Pat Manning a few epi episodes back, that you know, as syntactic language begins to form, one of the things that humans with this new complex language can do is begin to tell stories to each other. And in many ways, those stories become something like a social glue that holds people together um, into larger and larger units uh, beyond which was possible before language happened as societies became large enough that you didn't know everybody in the, the broader society, um, narrative took on a new form and increasingly it became associated with power. All right? So narratives should be seen as companions to power because the power structure is always going to employ some sort of narrative device to legitimize itself. Those narratives can be simple or complex, they can be rigid or adaptable, they can be weak or strong, and they can be more or less convincing to greater or lesser numbers of people. And actually, you know, going back to something I talked about uh, in the previous episode when I was comparing, you know, Biden's recognition of the Tulsa massacre versus uh, the PRC's continual continual um, attempt to to keep people from memorializing Tiananmen Square. I don't know that I made my point as clearly as I wanted to, but, but the point I want to make I wanted to make about that is that both of those decisions that by the PRC and, and, and that by Biden were ultimately about the narratives that the societies told themselves. And I think one of the things we could see from that is that the narrative 
that is employed by this American power structure, by the power structure within the United States, is problematic in all the ways we've talked about, but it's also a narrative that's very effective because of its adaptability. It can take in many different kinds of information and it can feed it into this narrative to make sense of it. Whereas that Chinese narrative, uh, first of all, it's, it's shorter, right? It only goes back to 1949 largely, or is only constructed after 1949, is still fairly fragile, right? It cannot make sense of things like Tiananmen Square in a way that allows for the continued functioning of the narrative. And that's you know one, one thing to think about when we think about these, what I'm calling legitimizing narratives, narratives that legitimize power, is that they should be judged in terms of their effectiveness by the extent to which they're disputed uh, in their own right or challenged by competing visions. In other words, when you dispute with power, when you stand up to power, are you just using the language of, uh, of, of the narrative that power has given you or are you actually trying to present a competing vision? There's, there's a great line from um, uh, a documentary about Tiananmen Square called The Gate of Heavenly Peace. And the narrator early in that, in that film, and I, I would recommend people watch it. It it's, uh, was produced in about 1995. And uh, the narrator says, talk about the student activists in, in, the Tian, in Tiananmen Square, says, when people stand up to power, they use the lessons that power taught them. And it's such a powerful way of, of trying to understand you know, what stories can, can mean for people. Because ultimately, when a narrative is effective, what it does is not just tell a story about you know, what the past was, but it influences how we act. And more often, what narratives do, and effective narratives of power do, is they make sense of or justify the world around us. Yeah, Josh, and here's the thing. You want a perfect example of what you're talking about? Any U.S. history textbook, you know, the kind they drop like a brick on the student's desk, yeah, there's your legitimizing narrative. Yes, absolutely. No, no, that's that's perfect. And and then because students are are kind of hit with this stuff right from the beginning, right? The stories that you've talked so much about, that you've done so much to to tear down, I think, you know, and and you've said this many times that your students come into your class and those things are just drilled into them. They don't really know that much about history, but there's certain things that are just drilled into them. And no matter how much you combat it, no matter how much you try to stand up against those narratives, it's just almost reflexive. They, go, they return right back to the stories that they've been told. And, and that suggests to me that the, the, the American uh, narrative construction has been immensely powerful and immensely successful in telling a certain kind of story. And um, let me just give you a couple examples of this from, from the United States as well. Um, I'll, I'll name three presidents, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, three of the most prominent and popular Democratic presidents the last well, forever, <laughs> maybe. Uh, three of the most popular ever. Kennedy, you know, one of the ways he gained fame in the 50s as his political star was rising was um, the publication of his book, Profiles and Courage. Um, and in that book, one of the people he, he profiles is a Confederate, a former Confederate uh, representative uh, and, and Confederate officer, uh, somebody who uh, ultimately was a big part of the redemption governments that ended Reconstruction. So that, for Kennedy, was a profile in Courage. Um, and you can see the way that even, you know, Kennedy, who was seen as this young, you know, hip, you know, uh, uh, anti-establishment, I guess, for the time uh, figure, you know, he just retreated back into the, the traditional narratives. Bill Clinton in his first inauguration says, everything wrong with America can be fixed by everything right about America. Barack Obama continually referenced the moral arc of the universe being long and bending towards justice. 
And so, you know, these are just three examples. I could, you know, we've talked about Ronald Reagan using the, he said, the shining city on the hill. But these, these references, these frequent references back to that American narrative um, in ways that are um, uh, satisfying, I think, for, for listeners. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they tell us what we want to hear. I think. Uh, yeah, to, they're to familiar. And like any good marketing, you know, they kind of roll off the tongue and can be repeated, you know, ad nauseum, which makes them like any good, what, radio commercial jingle, almost like, a, you know, uh, you know, that that song you can't get out of your head or something. It's it, it's an earworm, right? It, it's an earworm. Absolutely. But I, I don't want to talk so much about about uh the history of the United States and, and the narratives that exist in the United States. I want to give this other example, as I suggested earlier, and that is from the emergent Spanish Empire post-1492, so post-Columbus. Um, and I think it's such a, a powerful example because it's an example where we see the narrative structures that the Spanish brought with them to their empire begin to fall apart. Um, and so you really get to see this this society, this power structure, struggling with the the need for narrative construction in a world and in a context in which no narrative quite made sense of what was happening um, and so it's, it gives us an example of first of all um, you know how important the state how important the power structure finds narrative because it's literally a crisis happening at the height of Spanish power to try to control the narrative to explain their empire um, on, on the other hand it shows us the difficulty of creating new narratives um, that can be as effective as that that American narrative we were just talking about. So let's let's start at the beginning. I will try to be uh, relatively brief and talk about these kind of different moments in this. Uh, again, this this comes from my dissertation, so there's there's a lot to, to go through here, and I'll, I'll try to uh, not hit on every single thing. But maybe the, the place to start is with the fact that you know Columbus arrives in the Caribbean uh, in 1492, and he just begins claiming land. Um, it's a weird thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, I think it suggests a certain uh, sense of entitlement, maybe. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I think the thing that, that I want to focus on, or one of the things I, I like to focus on, I think, with this, is that this is fundamentally a weird thing. Uh, the Columbus story is so famous, right, that I don't think we always process how strange the story is, um, because it's actually not that common for people to just show up in a new place and plant a flag and say, this is now mine. Um, now there are certainly conquests, right? Uh, where, you know, you have neighbors and your neighbors are getting your way. And so you send your people in, they take over and and plant the flag in that place. But to travel 3000 miles across an ocean to a place you've never been and just assume, as you say, uh, that, that, uh, that it can be yours is a, is a fundamentally weird thing. Um, and it's something I like to stress that this is not actually some kind of normal action for, for humans to take as a 1492. It was a bizarre thing. And, and so what that means is that as Columbus, when Columbus returns home and as the Spanish begin to try to develop, you know, what he's uh, encountered, they run into immediately this problem. OK, so how do we justify taking over lands and people, by the way, who have done us no wrong and t- with whom we have no prior relationship? The Spanish, by the way, have a long history of conquest that goes back to this process called the Reconquista. Is that, is that a familiar term for you? I'm not sure if, if Reconquista is, a, is a, a term that would be familiar to listeners or not. Is that something that you've, you've come across? Well, uh, you know, only in, in teaching the survey course, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that it necessarily... People, I think, would be more familiar with its first cousin, which is, you know, the Crusades, right. maybe. No, yeah, yeah, and that's, that's, that's absolutely right. There, there's, there's, con- there's connection there. 
in the Spanish context, the, the Reconquista or the Reconquest was this centuries-long process, which itself is, you know, it's just a constructed narrative itself. But the, the narrative of Reconquest was one in which the Iberian Peninsula, uh, the peninsula which eventually houses Spain and Portugal, was conquered by Muslims in the year 711 or after the year 711. And the Reconquest was this process of, as, as it suggests, reconquering territory that within the narr narrative of Reconquest, the narrative of Reconquista, had been usurped from the rightful rulers, Christian rulers, by the way, of the region. As the Reconquest kind of uh, progressed over the course of centuries, there emerged a set of traditions regarding how conquest happened. And generally what that meant is that individual um, uh, warriors or war leaders uh, would organize a group of followers and they would go on campaign. Um, and if they won victories against their Moorish foes, they would then uh, claim the land, at which point they would get, um, they, they would go to the sovereign, the king or the queen, and they would win kind of rights uh, of reconquest. And that meant that they would essentially be nobles, uh, they would get certain privileges, but at the same time, they would uh, place themselves under the rule of the, the monarch, right? So there was this tradition in Spain of conquering land from infidels, as they would call them, Muslims. Um, and within that reconquest narrative, there was no such thing as an unjust war against Muslims. Wars against Muslims were always just. Uh, they didn't need to be justified. They didn't need to be legitimized in any way other than these are Muslims. They are natural enemies, and therefore war can be made against them. Does that sound like what's happening in the Caribbean, though? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, in the, in the sense that, that, you know, the, the, to the victor goes the spoils, yes. in other words, that this is some sort of natural process. Yes. In other words, yeah. So, and, and here's, here's, here's the issue, right? That, that is how people like Columbus saw it. Um, his son, Diego, actually is going to make this case very clearly. But it's an awkward case to make. And it, and it speaks to the fact that the Americas are not the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, you know, the, the Indios, as, as Columbus called them, or the, the native inhabitants of the Caribbean and, and the mainland, were not Moors. They were not Muslims. They were not infidels in that strict definition. And to make things even more uh, uh, awkward, I would say, when the Spanish began searching around for what would be their legitimizing narrative, how are they going to legitimize the conquest of people who had done them no wrong, um, they found uh, a clear way of doing so. And it came from the Pope himself. Um, and so the Pope at the time was Pope Alexander IV. He was a good buddy of Ferdinand, the king of, of uh, Aragon and the husband of Queen Isabella. And through a series of papal bulls, papal orders basically, uh, the most famous one being Intercatera, there's, there's three of them, he essentially granted the lands to, uh, to Ferdinand Isabel. And I'm just going to read you a little bit from this so you can see the logic of it. Uh, you are bound to our apostolic commands and by the bowels of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if I like bowels and Jesus Christ being put together that way, but from the bowels of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, enjoy, st enjoy strictly that inasmuch as with eager zeal for the true faith you design to equip and dispatch this expedition, you purpose also, as is your duty, to lead the peoples dwelling in those islands and countries to embrace the Christian religion. No, I was just going to say, I, I got to throw in that. That's fabulous. Yeah. You know, because one of my favorite examples, and it ties together your point, you know, about the Reconquista and, and what's happening now in the Western Hemisphere, is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, though, Josh, but Columbus sails 
1492. Sewn into the sails of his ships uh, is a Christian cross. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the Crusader sails, cross. Yeah, yeah. In effect. Right. As a crusader. Yes. Yeah. So... So this is this is the uh, this is the justification. The Pope has said that these lands are yours, and they're yours because uh, because you're going to do your duty, as he says, to lead the peoples dwelling on those islands and countries to embrace the Christian religion, um, and that becomes you know on the one hand it's such a boon to Ferdinand and Isabella, right? It's good to have friends in high places, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Now, do you think this would be convincing maybe to the Portuguese and the French and the English? when they hear of this, this grant given by the Pope? Or for that matter, do you think it would be convincing to the Tainos or the Caribs in, 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 the, uh, in the Caribbean? Well, I mean, it's always great to have permission for what you're determined to do anyway. Exactly, so, yeah. You know, as far as the former constituents are concerned, yes, it would be gleefully embraced, I think. Uh, for the native folks of the Western Hemisphere, eh, not so much. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing. It, again, you know, if you've got a buddy who's willing to give you this kind of stuff, it's great. But I would say that, that outside of Spain, people are like, what, what is this? How, why would the Pope have the right to just give any people and any lands to, to anybody he, <laughs> he wants? Um, and, but this is, the, this is the foundation of the Spanish Empire, the, the ideological foundation of the Spanish Empire. Um, and it itself is based on a narrative, right? And this, the, the interesting thing about these narrative traditions, they're always based around you know, this kind of stacking of narratives upon narratives. Uh, the Pope itself, the papacy itself, is going to justify its own authority over Christendom based on this thing called the Petrine Doctrine, which I don't need to get too far into, but basically uh, that Peter, who was the rock, right, uh, of Christ, mm-hmm. um, he had been the first bishop of, of Rome. And the Petrine Doctrine said that every bishop after that point inherits the power of Peter. Um, and therefore, uh, this is the entire justification for, for Rome being the center of Christianity, that the, the popes are the heirs to Peter, and therefore... Uh, the place, uh, I'm sorry, the center of Christianity. Um, now, again, even there, there's nothing about uh, the Petrine doctrine that suggests the Pope can just grant land, but now they have that justification. All right. It's worth mentioning, you know, again, that having permission to do what you're going to do anyway is a really useful thing uh, that Catholic, after all, meant universal. Yes. Right. Yeah. So this was a parochial claim now on a universal authority <laughs> yes no that, that that's right and I, I, that's really i think it's a really important point you're making about you know getting justification for the thing you were going to do anyway that's ultimately how these these narratives work right the narratives are constructed to make sense of the things that we're already doing that power mm-hmm. the power structure already <laughs> wants to do um that's you know that's why they're constructed for that that specific purpose um and so this is is fitting right into this the problem becomes that the actual activities of the Spanish, you may have heard this, the actual activities of the Spanish in the Americas um, don't necessarily comport with, uh, you know, good Christian activities, we'll just say, right? <laughs> Is that, that a controversial? I know we're trying not to be controversial here, but uh, so that's, all, that's the uncontroversial way of saying that. The, the more controversial way to, to talk about this is that the Spanish colonists who arrive first in the Caribbean and then eventually the mainland were short timers, right? They were there to get rich as quickly as possible so they could go back to Spain and use their newfound wealth to buy land and essentially win noble titles in that way. So they're not really thinking of, you know, the long-term um, viability of this colonial system. They want to get rich as quickly as they could and with as little work as possible. And that means somebody else has to do the work and that's going to be the indigenous population. So those first couple decades 
of Spanish activity in the Caribbean are horrific um, in terms of the treatment of the native people. Um, and uh, there are massacres, there's enslavement, of course, um, there's brutality, there's you know famously dogs which are trained to hunt Indians, all kinds of horrific stuff, all for the purpose of controlling labor, um, all for the purpose of gaining wealth from these territories. This, though, is eventually going to create a, a problem because if you've been given access, legitimacy over territory based on the idea of, of you know being good Christians and this is how you're behaving, somebody might eventually take notice of that. And that's what begins to happen. Now, remember, this is an empire that we've never seen the like of before. It's 3,000 miles away from, from the center of power. Um, there is not much of a bureaucracy at this point. There's not a lot, a, a lot of information flow going back and forth um, for the, 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 the monarchs in Spain. As long as the, the wealth is coming home, they generally you know, don't want to think too much about what's happening in the Americas. But the, the scale of the brutality is enough that people do begin to take notice. And the key moment becomes with the arrival of the Dominicans on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, this was the, the main island the Spanish were uh, uh, exploiting in these early years. And the key figure here is a Dominican named Montesinos. Uh, Montesinos arrives on Hispaniola and is horrified by what he sees. And so one day uh, when the gathered elite of Hispaniola arrive at church for mass, Montesinos uh, gets up on the podium and he lays into them. Um, he says uh, a number of things, but I'll quote the most famous part of his, his sermon here. He says, are these not men? Speaking of the Indians, are these not men? Do they not have rational souls? Are you not bound to love them as you love yourselves? Don't you understand this? Don't you feel this? Why are you sleeping in such a profound and lethargic slumber? So these elites arrive at church ready to sleep through the sermon, I think. And instead, they are hit with this, uh, this attack on everything they've been doing. Um, of course, it does not go over well amongst those elite. They write back home. Who is this guy? Why is he doing this? Um, how can he say this to us? Diego Columbus himself, the heir of, of Christopher, who is now the viceroy and the governor of, of these American territories, says uh, to Montesinos, how dare he say this to us? The Spaniards, meaning that, you know, this, this elite here, had won those islands with great hardships and had subjugated the pagans who held them. Now, that's a different kind of story than the one that the Pope had been telling about the right, to, the right to rule over these territories, right? The Pope had said, you can be there because you're going to Christianize them. And here's Columbus saying, uh, you know, what everybody else has been thinking. We are here because we won. We are here because we subjugated these pagans. And that's why we get to do what we want. Uh, the Pope has given these territories to the monarchs. The monarchs gave them to us. And we will do what we want with them. Um, so this, though, creates the first real ch narrative challenge. Uh, I'm sure the monarchy was hoping, the Pope said we can have it, that's fine, we're just going to keep doing this. And here go comes the Dominicans, here comes Montesinos, uh, and he kind of drives a stake in the heart of this narrative. The contradiction of the heart of the American enterprise then was that while the best justification for Spanish dominance of the Indies was that religious one, it's the easiest one, right? The easiest route to, to the wealth that filled the royal treasury and drove colonists to you know, cross an ocean and, and deal with the various hardships of living uh, in these unfamiliar places was through the exploitation of the indigenous population. So here's, that's the contradiction. The religion is the way we have to justify this, but exploitation is how we actually have to benefit from these. 
And so that's what's going to happen from, you know, basically 1513, which is when Montesinos gives his sermon, is you're going to see this, this fracturing of the narrative. Uh, these two views of the Indians. Uh, for the Dominicans, people like Montesinos, uh, Bartolome de las Casas is going to be the more famous uh, protector of the Indians, as his famous title is. Um, for them, the Indians were gentle creatures to be converted. And on the other hand, they also needed to be seen as economic resources to be exploited. And those two things don't fit together very, very well. But that becomes a challenge of Spanish narrative construction. How do we get what we need from these territories while also doing the things we're supposed to do within these territories as well? Yeah, the thing that really occurs to me, Josh, you know, as you're, as you're laying out what seems to be the, the fundamental contradiction at the heart of this emerging narrative about the new world, you know, that, that we, we need to recall, this, this is a very fluid environment, we might say, ethically, you yes, know, yeah. and, and even morally, because it's not as if, you know, this idea of civil rights had become, you know, established yet. You know, they couldn't point to what the UN, uh, you know, Declaration of Universal Rights or something, or, or even, uh, you know, t Thomas uh, or John Locke or somebody like that, you know, <clears throat> that, that these, these Dominicans, you know, who, who ostensibly represent the, the fundamentally religious, you know, sort of purpose for this, uh, which is understood to be, you know, ultimately, you know, to, to the glory of God, a kind of, you know, moral purpose, is you know they're they're having to try and pull the brake on on something using uh, you know a rationale that isn't terribly well developed yet. That is the idea that it's inhumane or it's unjust because you know they're, they're living after all in a time when their own church is holding the you know the the board of the Inquisition yeah. and you know there's no such thing as cruel and unusual punishment. So it's a fascinating moment. Yeah, where you see these 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 narratives starting to emerge and diverge from one another, but they don't have all the pieces yet. You know? No, they don't, and that, that that's what that's exactly what makes it so fascinating. I mean, they're literally making this up as they go because the, the situation is is unfamiliar. It's not just you know they, you're right that they don't have you know a Declaration of Human Rights. They don't have you know ideas of human rights in general. Don't don't really exist. But you do see you know them trying to construct these ideas. You know, I would say. I guess to the credit, I, I mean, this is barely any credit, but the, the monarchs in Spain, whether that's, you know, Ferdinand and Isabella themselves, Isabella seems to be disturbed when she hears reports of what's going on in, uh, in Hispaniola, um, you know, Charles I, later uh, the Emperor Charles V, um, he is actually seems to be very, to the extent that he ever has time to think about this stuff, he seems to be particularly concerned about this. He holds this, this famous debate um, in, in, in Spain, Valladolid. Um, between Bartolome de las Casas and then an, an, another uh, Spanish jurist named Sepulveda about basically humanity of, of the Indians. All right, so they're having these big public debates and discussions and people are writing things back and forth to each other because you're, you're right, they're trying to figure out, well, what can we get away with? What can we do and what is not allowed? Um, and, you know, what we find is that there's no good answer to this. Right? There's no, no perfect way of, of getting across the the newness the novelty of the situation while making it make sense within the old narrative traditions while making it make sense to those catholic and, and christian traditions um and as the kind of decades go by in the spanish empire what what continually happens is that the spanish crown itself is increasingly uh uncomfortable presenting any particular narrative at all right they basically just wash their hands of it 
Uh, by the time you get to uh, mm. uh, you know uh, the Emperor, uh, King Philip, um, they basically he says he wants nothing to do with that. Um, he uh, he does, doesn't try to create a narrative when some of his bureaucrats try to construct their own narratives. He just buries them basically um, and, and doesn't allow anybody to read them. Um, so it's this this yeah go for it. Oh, I was going to say you know this uh, just for context. You know, in Spain in particular, right? I mean, you have a a, a burgeoning uh, culture of of print, yeah, and and printed materials. And so, when you say narratives, you're talking about at least a you know, a, I guess call it maybe an elite culture of reading. Yes, and uh, and 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 this is a hothouse of public of publishing. You know these these narratives, especially the competing narratives, as they come back from the Atlantic world, come back to Madrid and and some of these other seats, you know, to to try and effectively win what was their version of the culture war. That's 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 a perfect way of putting it, right? That all these people are going to the Americas, all these people who are, you know, living and trying to profit from the Americas, the Spanish crown itself, they all have various interests and they need narratives that can support those interests. But because this is an empire that crosses, as I said earlier, three thousand miles of ocean, because it's a type of empire that nobody has quite ever established before because the, the you know, tentacles of power are not quite as strong as they might be in a smaller, more compact kingdom. It's all happening kind of ad hoc. As much as they're trying to bureaucratize this empire and they you know, have some success with doing that by the 1570s or, or so, um, there's this struggle of just trying to figure out which stories we can accept, which stories we can't accept. And, and what we see that the general trend over the course of the, of the 16th century is the Spanish, uh, you know, imperial? I'm sorry, the Spanish royal court, eventually uh, headed up by by Philip himself, um, just don't want any narratives out there. Um, and so, for instance, mm -hmm. Las Casas, who is again the defender of the Indians, although uh, he has his own his own issues certainly a, as well. You know, he writes uh, these famous books of the destruction of of of, uh, of the Indians of the Indies, uh, the history of the Indies. He also writes uh, both of which are very uh, polemical accounts of the Spanish destruction of the Indians. Those accounts are very, very patronizing towards the indigenous people themselves. He paints them as basically children, uh, total innocence, mm -hmm. lacking ambition, lacking any of these, the, you know, normal, in trying to humanize them, he almost makes them seem completely unhuman um, in, in the way they're, they're presented. You know, so his, his writings are gonna circulate for a while and then they get, they get buried, um, they become censored. And uh, there's a period of time in which there are more copies of, of Las Casas' works published just in the Netherlands than the rest of Europe combined. Uh, the Dutch want to print these things because they paint the Spanish badly and the Dutch are trying to get out from under the yoke of the Spanish king. Um, uh, Cortes, right? One of the great heroes, you would think, of, of the Spanish Empire, the, the famous conqueror of Mexico. Um, his letters, which are these just masterful narrative constructions that managed to make him seem like a Reconquista hero. He's a devoted uh, servant of his king. Uh, he is a humanitarian who only wants to save Indians from these despotic governments. Um, he is completely loyal and only wants what's best for his men, for the Indians, and for his king. By the 1560s, uh, Cortez's letters, which are massively famous and have been published and reprinted over and over again, those are, are, are uh, going to be buried by, uh, by the Spanish court as well. So they, they're not allowed to be read anywhere in Spain or printed anywhere in Spain. And so you, you, you get a sense of this, this process in which um, the narrative becomes too hard to follow. Uh, too many different interest groups, too many different interests in general are trying to present their own narratives. 
and the end result is the Spanish, um, you know, by the 1570s, essentially washed their hands of it entirely. Part of the challenge, and, and I can finish up here, but part of the big challenge of what the Spanish had accomplished or, or were in the process of doing is that their empire was created through a twin process of quote-unquote discovery and conquest, right? There are many, many references to discovery in the writings of, of various you know, Spanish figures who took part in the occupation of the Americas. But those same figures almost always wanted to present themselves also as conquerors in that old Reconquista type narrative. They wanted to be like the heroes of the old Reconquista. You have stories in Peru, for instance, where uh, Santiago himself, the patron saint of Spain, uh, the, the, the guy who used to, uh, according to legend, ride on the battlefields and help slay the Moors. He's actually known as Santiago Matamoros, uh, the, the Moor Slayer. He rides in the battlefield to kill Indians as well, right? Um, so you have um, this discovery and conquest happening at the same time, and it creates this massive confusion on the part of, of the Spanish crown because discovery is not the same as conquest. Um, and when there's conquest, there's complexity. There's all kinds of justifications that are acquired. There's all kinds of rewards that have to be given. And by the time you get to 1573, Philip II decides there will be no more of this. By the 1570s, Philip II was not interested in entertaining questions of legitimacy. He continued every, uh, every year. People would send him their narratives that attempted to, you know, kind of square all these different elements of, of the Spanish process of conquest discovery in the Americas. They attempted to make sense of why the Spanish got to rule, why Philip II got to claim these territories, why they got to extract wealth. Um, but eventually Philip II decided essentially that he was fine with the empire existing just as a source of revenue, not as a source of narratives. And he basically locked it all down. In 1573, uh, his, uh, his advisor and, and the kind of key jurist in the Spanish court, a guy named Juan de Ovando, uh, wrote up this piece um, and the key line here is it says quote discoveries are not to be called conquest since we wish them to be carried out peacefully and charitably we do not want the use of the term conquest to offer any excuse for the employment of force or the causing of injury injury to the Indians so discover all you want end quote by the way discover all you want but don't call it conquest because once there's conquest there's all kinds of narrative challenges that are going to emerge as a result. Well, you know, I really, I really love that. You know, from conquest to discovery. Yeah. You know, um, so much of, of of the subsequent national history writing, including that of the United States, uh, but also in the Western Civ tradition, right, yeah. is this idea that we're going to frame this narrative as one of discovery mm -hmm. and not one of conquest, even though, as you pointed out. Initially, conquest was completely legitimate, uh, stemming from the, Recon the Reconquista, yeah. that is the Holy Wars of the Iberian Peninsula, that that was as legitimate a reason as any, you know, to to move forward, uh, that this disenchantment, you know, with, with somebody like Philip, you know, over these endless narratives yeah. that become sort of incriminating and, you know, yeah. uh, difficult uh, that, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, the narrative turn there toward, well, then let's just call it, uh, let's just call it discovery, I think is, you know, is brilliant. Yeah. Well, and what's so funny about this, because, you know, Philip, Philip, like Charles, Charles the right, first, that Philip's father is like the swashbuckling king. He's always riding different parts of Europe and, you know, leading armies in a battle and trying to hold together this massive complex empire. And Philip is like a 
I think one one scholar called him. He's the chief bureaucrat. Uh, he just wants to like read mm. read documents, right? And that's what he does. I, I spent time in the the archive of the Indies in in Sevilla, and uh, you can you, you can find all these documents, all these letters written from, you know, I was focusing a lot on Peru. All these letters written from uh, the viceroy Toledo to to Philip, and he's annotating every single letter. And these letters are just mm. filled with just useless information, and you know, there's so much detail. And he's reading every single thing, and you got to imagine. You know, he's getting a letter from, you know, these letters from Toledo. And then this, there's this uh, this writer named Pedro Sarmiento de Gamboa, who decides he's going to write a history of the Inca. Uh, and the history of the Inca is going to justify the Spanish conquest of of uh, of the Andes, basically, um, because that was also a very controversial thing. As you might know, when Pizarro uh, takes uh, uh, captures the, the Inca um, and, and eventually kills him. And, you know, he assumes, oh, that's fine. You know, I can kill who I want to kill. But he's actually charged as a regicide, right? You can't go killing a king, even if it's a king 3,000 miles away. So that whole story of, of you know, the, the, the conquest of the Andes is also caught up in all these, these bizarre, you know, narrative struggles. And so uh, uh, Sarmiento decides to write this history of the Inca. And the, the point of the, the history of the Inca is that it is, first of all, going to be based on real scholarship right he he travels all over the andes he talks to every single person he can about you know the native person he can about you know who they are and, and where they came from and you know how the system developed but the entire point of his narrative is that the inca themselves were um were illegitimate so here's here's one thing that that sarmiento writes in this in this book and he writes it literally to the king right this is like a present to the king to philip and philip as as i suggest doesn't want to read any of it but Sarmiento reports in this in this piece, uh, without a hint of irony, by the way, quote, the Incas were strangers in Cusco. That's the imperial capital of the Inca. The Incas were strangers in Cusco, and they seized the valley of Cusco and all the rest of the territory from Quito to Chile by force of arms, making themselves Incas without the consent or election of the natives. So that's why they're illegitimate, <laughs> which is just hilarious because <laughs> it's literally describes the entirety of the Spanish uh imperial construction in the Americas, or for that matter, any empire anywhere in the world. Um, but because they're illegitimate and because the uh, uh, because Pizarro had killed killed Atahualpa, who they say was was the true Inca, and because there were no heirs, they say, to Atahualpa, then, in fact, Philip II was the true heir to the Inca Empire. And therefore, you don't need to worry about, you know, what Pizarro did. You know, maybe he shouldn't have killed Atahualpa, but what's done is done. And the fact remains that all Atahualpa's heirs are just bastards and they don't have true claim to the power. And therefore, uh, the entire empire should revert to Philip II. It's a, a brilliant, you know, piece of legal legal mumbo jumbo of narrative construction. But as I said, Philip II wants nothing to do with it. And in fact, this amazing uh, uh, book, uh, History of the, In uh, of the Inca, never gets published. And I think it only finally kind of uh, gets out of the archives in like the 19th century, where it's published and then and then translated and re reprinted in various places um so there you go narrative construction in the spanish empire a complex process one that never quite arrives at that unified story that unified justification for power like we we talked about uh with this kind of american narrative this uh, uh, narrative in the united states and the result is uh philip ii and his uh, successor for that matter eventually throwing up their hands um, and never quite constructing any kind of narrative to encompass all the complexity, all the novelty, and all the messiness of the Spanish Empire.
Well, well done, partner. I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fertile ground here. In fact, as we go into our our next segment, I want to try and, and, and create that that direct line of of uh, succession from one narrative uh, to the next back to a famous moment uh, in the standard version history of the United States. Let's do it. So you're talking about these Spanish narratives uh, in, you know, written more or less in in real time, you know, in some cases a bit after the fact, but essentially, you know, contemporaneous with these, you know, these these momentous events happening uh, in the Atlantic world. And and not surprisingly, given what you said about sort of the genesis of, of these narratives, you know, steeped as they were in the, the, the holy wars of the Iberian Peninsula, the larger battles between the, you know, Christendom and the world of Islam, the Crusades and that sort of thing. Not surprisingly, in a lot of these narratives, you know, the, the, the heroes of the story are going to be who? They're going to be military people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Almost always, yeah. So, almost always. And and, and that becomes then the, the font of whatever sort of morality tale is supposed to follow, you know, although as, as someone like the, the beleaguered King Philip might uh, suggest, it, it was getting more and more difficult to square that round hole, you know, right. of, of storytelling around some kind of identifiable, you know, straight line of moral purpose or something. But, uh, you know, not that people won't keep trying and not that, that you know, uh, sovereign states won't essentially copy that Spanish model. Uh, look, as as you were narrating your own version of this, mm-hmm. I was thinking about a, a historian we both like, Jorge Canizares Esguera. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Right, who's at the University of Texas at Austin, and you know he's a guy that that doesn't have any problem sort of crashing the party of of an anglophone history that is of an all English speaking history to to remind you know his uh, you know remind the academy that there is no hermetically sealed border around the thing we call the United States that all these historical processes that were happening and which preceded the English settlement in North America had terrific influence tremendous influence on what subsequently played out here in North America so as much as the standard version history of the United States tries to maintain that kind of hermetically sealed, you know, Anglo-centric, English-centric uh, narrative. You know, a guy like Canizares Esquera, you know, show, holds up a mirror that shows something very different. One of the cool books he, he uh, wrote, Josh, you might recall, uh, was one uh, titled Puritan Conquistadors. Oh, that's a great title. And so, yeah, he's talking about these English Puritans, you know, who we've spent some time with, the likes of a John Winthrop and, and that ilk. You know, who are center, right? Uh, center in the storytelling tradition of U.S. national history as these moral exemplars uh, of what is supposedly this, you know, American tradition of, um, you know, of democracy and religious liberty and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, calling them Puritan conquistadors. Look, the English might have hated the Spanish on, you know, what, theological grounds mm-hmm. or something, and because of, you know, royal politics, you know, the Spanish Armada and all that kind of stuff. 
But they sure read those narratives oh, you were talking them. about. They translated oh, them. Oh, right? they loved them. The reason why yes. we have them, you know, have a lot of them in English is because you know these English uh, translators yes. published them. Yeah, English and Dutch, as you pointed yeah. out. You know, they they couldn't get enough of this stuff. And and though they were sort of honor bound to tisk tisk, you know, the the the, the uh, you know the 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 popish yeah. Catholic, <laughs> you know, what they considered you know insults. Uh, to their religious sensibilities, they were taking notes like the most, uh, you know, eager front row students. And so they modeled a lot of what they did in their own uh, campaigns of privateering, of colony building, and of conquest. They really modeled a lot of their approaches on that Iberian model, you know, that you were talking about, that Spanish and Portuguese model. And so the example that I have of how you can find traces of this even in the standard version history of the United States, even in the textbooks that, you know, kids um, are still getting, you know, sort of dropped like a, you know, like a heavy brick on their school desks uh, in those U.S. history textbooks. A moment, uh, a famous moment, in fact, in that story, I think it, it offers us that echo, you know, of that that narrative tradition you're discussing. And it's the moment at the end of what's usually called the War of 1812, mm-hmm. right? And the, and the famous Battle of New Orleans, where the hero of the peace and Andrew Jackson, the Napoleon of the woods, as the English called him, will defeat the British army uh, in the Battle of New Orleans uh, and bus, thus become a kind of, uh, what, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, nationalistic you know image for the ages or something in other words just at the moment that the united states as a nation in its infancy still is looking for the those elements of continuity and coherence that can somehow define you know the story going forward you know jackson comes uh, up with this great upset win over the redcoats at new orleans and mm-hmm. thus lends himself forever after you know to this this narrative yeah of nation building, uh, not unlike, say, Cortez, you know, or Pizarro, or any of the other guys you named, who's sort of adventurer, you know, hero types, you know, even even the sort of self-applied label of conquistador was, I mean, you could probably talk at length, was kind of a, a ginned up notion, you know, yeah. that it sort of presented this kind of honorable tale but was really you know these guys were really hustlers you know they were sort of quasi military dudes you know who put together a plan and then followed it through and that that describes Andrew Jackson as well you know he's a he's a kind of a Carolina backwoodsman scotch irish you know a self sort of self-made self-taught you know kind of rough around the edges dude you know who puts together some militias uh, in Carolina and then later you know, sort of takes command of the fledgling U.S. military forces. So, in other words, uh, an American conquistador. In other words, Andrew Jackson. You know, uh, and so, but, you know, here's the thing about that. That then becomes the narrative. Strange, as you pointed out, where you get in Spain these Christian, what are ostensibly Christian narratives that have to somehow reconcile these you know, extraordinary horrors of inhumanity, you know, perpetrated against native peoples. Because, you know, the thing that's going to make Jackson famous, you know, in addition to the victory at New Orleans, you know, is is a string of victories. And ultimately, then as president, his famous decision for Indian removal, right? So 
here is this guy who comes to symbolize what's called even Jacksonian democracy, who's really guilty of, you know, these depredations, you, you know, under the, 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 the aegis of what, of, 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 you know, national military interests, these depredations against native people, you know, up to and including the Trail of Tears, uh, and, uh, and yet somehow nevertheless remains in popular standing as then uh, a symbol you know, of these freedoms, even, even Donald Trump, you know, who I'm convinced has not cracked open, uh, you know, anything like a history book in his life, uh, was told about Andrew Jackson, right, and, and liked to sort of, you know, this sort of fancy that Jackson was kind of a guy he would understand yeah. or something, you know. So as far as I know, Andrew Jackson was the only president that actually carried shrapnel in his body from gunfights he was in, yeah. I mean, duels, you know. Okay. So that's the way it gets laid out and all its sort of strangeness and, and uh, apparent inconsistency. But it's a doctored narrative, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, it sort of rests on what you and I have come to call the sovereignty trap mm -hmm. that is defining these narratives according to the interests of power, governing interests, economic elites and that sort of thing. It's, it's a bordered and bounded history because yeah. New Orleans, for example, really only comes into the narrative at that point, at that point of, you know, that military flashpoint where you get this American conquistador, you know, Andrew Jackson laying waste to, you know, the, the enemy or in any of his many other military battles to the, you know, the pagan native people or something. Um, and so it's bounded by the sovereignty boundaries of the United States itself. In other words, Louisiana and New Orleans had existed for a century, right, before Andrew Jackson ever gets there. Yeah. But it doesn't come into the U.S. national narrative any appreciable degree until that happens. And so what do we want to do, Josh? We want to take off that border. We want to dismiss the sovereignty impetus. And we want to go back and say, hey, you know, what What was happening there anyway in the previous uh, 100 years? In other words, like our episode titled, What Happened in Louisiana Was? Well, and that's why I want to take just a minute here because it connects to what we were talking about in previous episodes. That is when we turn that perspective, the narrative perspective away, you know, from the sovereignty trap, from that bordered kind of parochial uh, you know, perspective. What we find, instead of these sort of goofy, doctored narratives, what we find are narrative potentials here that actually do us the extraordinary favor of explaining how we got here. Yeah. You know, of, of explaining how we got to be who we are, right? And so I go back to a person we talked about last time, uh, a historian, uh, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, who was one of those who decided to take a peek beyond Andrew Jackson, let's say, you know, to, to actually look at Louisiana in its colonial origins before it became a formal part of the United States, right? It was first a French colony established in the early 1700s uh, with New Orleans at its, uh, you know, its sort of uh, political center uh, for a time in the 18th century. Then it became a Spanish uh, colony before ultimately in the early national period of the United States, it would uh, be uh, reclaimed 
and renamed or at least repossessed then uh, following uh, Thomas Jefferson's famous uh, deal with Napoleon, you might say, uh, the uh, Louisiana Purchase, right? right. It'll become then part of the uh, U.S. imperial domain, uh, ultimately becoming uh, a state. Now, so Gwen Hall says, well, okay, that's great for the U.S. national, but what was happening the 100 previous years that might actually tell us about who we are? Uh, well, okay, so her book uh, then, uh, and it's a path-breaking path breaking book, Africans in Colonial Louisiana, published uh, back in 1992, Africans in Colonial Louisiana, argues for a history free of the nation-state bordered framework and sovereignty trap that we've been talking about. In other words, Gwen Hall was talking about this back in 92, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she says, in Louisiana, it is especially important to avoid treating the formation of these histories, in other words, in, in isolation as if sealed off from the rest of society in the world, uh, just because, in other words, it hadn't yet become part of the United States. In other words, in the U.S. sovereign history, it only becomes part of the history when what? When the United States, as a sovereign nation power, acquires it. It's, as yeah. if it were, what, in suspended in animation or something prior to that time? Only when it becomes important to the story is it is it useful right and, and before that point it yes. just gets left out on the side as something peripheral peripheral or even just you know erased entirely from 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 the story it doesn't matter until exactly. it, until it matters exactly and i guess that's why the folks in the arizona legislature you know would not be interested in this particular story yeah. uh, because you know it might actually explain what happened you know prior to that that moment, as I say, that kind of, uh, you know, uh, coronation moment of Andrew Jackson in New Orleans. Uh, and here's the other thing, of course, as the title of her book suggests, uh, and, and, and the thing that makes it now, I guess, worthy of what was it, $5,000 fine in Arizona, yes. is, is that the, the stars of that history are not, uh, you know, English speaking, you know, swashbuckling military general hero types. The star, or, or even English-speaking people at all, the stars in that hundred-year uh, period, that fundamental foundational period that will then become foundational to the United States, are uh, are not even European at all, right? They're Africans, uh, and it's that business of finding that trail, that connection, that migratory connection uh, across the Atlantic, you know, through the age of what we call the Atlantic slave trade, to see African people becoming the pioneer population of a place that although it yet wasn't part of either the English Empire or later the United States, would nevertheless be exactly that in short order. In other words, you might want to pretend the history isn't there, but then when these folks show up at the party, it turns out they've been there all along. They're not late arriving guests at all, but they've been there uh, from before the party even started, you know. And so we have to, again, reconcile that idea of how we frame these things, the way we use the historical periodization. You know, do we start the story with Jackson in 1815? Do we start the story with the French colony? 
1715? Do we then feature, you know, the colonial, uh, you know, European, whether French or English actors or later Anglo-American actors? Or do we start with the folks then who were actually the very, what, demographic heart of this history? And in that case, it's African people. Mm -hmm. As Gwen Hall says, Louisiana, from virtually the start of its uh, French colonial phase, of course, we're conveniently now stepping past what had been a much longer Native American yes. history, but we're picking up with this French imperial phase. Uh, Africans will become absolutely, she says, thoroughly Africanized. Louisiana was thoroughly Africanized during the early years of the settlement and were the most numerous population by 1746, that is by the mid-18th century, and still a majority when the French abandoned the colony to Spain in 1763. So just on the doorstep of the American Revolution then, in a territory you know, uh, that would later become part of the United States, there is a, a kind of simultaneous history happening that involves what is essentially the demographic um, you know, uh, building block of African people, African culture. Two-thirds th two of those enslaved brought to Louisiana by the French come from that region of West Africa, Senegambia, that we were talking about in the last episode. They are ethno-linguistically, Sirer, Wolof, Pular, uh, and, and even uh, Mandinka. That is, these are, are ethnic people self-identified as such from these ethno-linguistic territorial places in a very specific part of West Africa, who then become, in effect, the pioneers. But, you know, I wonder, Josh, as much attention as we give to pioneers in U.S. history, you know, we, we love us the Mayflower, don't Absolutely, we? And we yeah. love... We love the Puritan migrations and, and even then later sort of leapfrogging to the huddled masses or something at Ellis Island. How come we never talk about the Wolof coming to New Orleans? <laughs> the Statue of Liberty wasn't there, so it's not, not worth talking about, I guess, right? <laughs> Maybe the French were getting even with us when they gave us yeah. the Statue of Liberty. Um, New Orleans, founded in 1718, that famous and enigmatic and compelling city you know, that gets claimed subsequently after Andrew Jackson, very much claimed by the SVH. New Orleans was founded in 1718, so 100 years basically before Andrew Jackson, uh, 125 miles from the mouth of the Mississippi River, sitting in that kind of swampy lowlands, you know, of the Mississippi Delta, Lake Pontchartrain, the Gulf of Mexico, always flood prone, flood prone and, and hurricane prone, as Gwen Hall points out. Uh, with almost everything needing to be built and rebuilt, you know, in the cycles of Mother Nature. So it's not just Hurricane you know, Katrina that, that was a, a boondoggle. Katrina was a boondoggle. But you have this early history. And I'm going to give you one guess, Josh, then as to who, demographically speaking, who were the bodies and souls responsible for constructing that tidal city, that remarkable city with a system of levees and dikes and drainage basins and wharfs and piers. Uh, yeah, who would you guess was responsible for that? It wasn't the Dominicans, right? <laughs> um, it had to be, I'm sure, mostly enslaved West Africans. <laughs> Absolutely. The folks that, that you know, we just named, 
by you know ethnic identity and, and language. Absolutely, these are the people you know, we often like to say who built America. Well, these people are literally building uh, New Orleans, mm -hmm. the city as such, right? An enormous labor required to keep that river at bay, to keep those, those tidal washes from just completely drowning the inhabitants, right? And so labor was certainly at a premium and the labor that's going to be brought will then be that enslaved African labor. And it is often skilled labor. I mean, bringing skills from traditions of West Africa, whether metalworking, uh, even shipbuilding. You talk about the canoes that plied the water trade along the Mississippi, often, you know, helmed by enslaved Africans from the river regions of, uh, you know, West Africa, of, of Gambia and, and the Senegal River and many others. Um, yeah, we, we don't give New Orleans the same kind of attention, do we say, as, as we do Boston, right. you know, as a kind of foundational American city. And, and maybe because, as Gwen Hall says, you know, for its first hundred years, and in fact, still today, really, New Orleans was overwhelmingly black. Mm -hmm. That is its population, its culture, uh, its labor, its style, you know? I mean, we talked a bit about last time, you know, bringing cultural traditions from West Africa, including the extraordinary musicality, tradition of musical instruments, stringed instruments, uh, storytelling. Hey, listen, I, you know, I'm a big fan of the blues, Josh, and, you know, I love uh, Muddy Waters. And when he talks about going down to New Orleans to get uh, John the Conqueror, you know, that's a good luck amulet, man, that's going to give this man, you know, every chance to have, a, well, let's just say the thing blues singers always are trying to get, which is a good experience with, uh, you know, with, with a lovely lady, yeah. let's say. <laughs> you know, that's his magic, that's his good luck charm, you know. Uh, well, these are steeped then in that Creole tradition of Louisiana. It's a black cultural tradition. It's an African improvised, reappropriated, made from the materials at hand Creole tradition now in Louisiana that finds its way ultimately into those most American of cultural pathways. If we're talking about music, something then like the blues, right? Something that is going to inform then essentially the entire modern history of popular music, not just in the United States, but even globally. Uh, but yeah, but we don't usually put it that way. We wait for Andrew Jackson, the conquistador, to come along and write that kind of narrative. Um, as Gwen Hall says, it is relevant to look to Senegambia for the African roots of Louisiana, Louisiana's Afro-Creole culture. All the major crops of 18th century Louisiana, that is the material foundation of what ultimately becomes the state of Louisiana and the city of New Orleans, which, by the way, is the primary driving interest for Jefferson's purchase of Louisiana territory from Napoleon, right? I mean, Napoleon's got his own problems due to the, 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 uh, the revolution in Haiti and Saint-Domingue. He wants to offload Louisiana purchase to the upstart Americans. You know, pennies on the acre, 800,000 acres of, uh, you know, square miles, rather, of land, continental territory. But it was really New Orleans at that point that Jefferson is after. Uh, it's New Orleans that's going to drive, then, the growth of the American westward empire. And it's New Orleans, then, that is fundamentally the city 
of African people and Creole people who are imparting their labor, their culture, their traditions in this new sort of chapter then of what we call New World history. All the major crops of 18th century Louisiana were grown in the area of Senegambia, including cotton and indigo and rice. Mm. These are crop traditions then that will find their way then to the New World and play an extraordinarily important role in what becomes the material basis of U.S. history. Rice, for example, which had been cultivated in the middle Niger region of West Africa, for 3,500 years, Josh, 3,500 years of agricultural tradition that will find its way through this process of enslavement, of kleptocracy, of plantation management. I mean, the whole sordid story will find it that, you know, it finds its way now into what then becomes really the bedrock, not just of Louisiana history, you know, but, but of the larger American uh, history. And yet, you know, like I say, compared to the Mayflower Pilgrims or the Puritans or, you know, name a group that usually gets celebrated in the American, you know, sort of self-congratulatory story of the melting pot. You know, these people, these West Africans, these Wolof, these Pula, these Sirer, these people are cultural orphans by the standards of the SVH, which if it identifies them at all, does so belatedly, and might mention what, Africa or something, some generic stand-in yeah. label, right? As if to mask them off from the historical process. So yeah, as a people who had migrated and dispersed, you know, uh, in, in, in Africa themselves before being enslaved, you know, crossing the Atlantic, you know, finding this unwanted, uninvited, but now, you know, what uh, irresistible sort of force of the Atlantic slave trade, finding themselves in this new land, this stra strangers in a strange land, with all those cruelties built into the narrative of conquest, you know, all the inhumanity of enslavement. Nevertheless, nevertheless, because of what we might call the human capital they bring with them. Uh, the thing we always celebrate or like to give voice, you know, to, or at least lip service to, and that idea of the melting pot, you know, these sort of sturdy immigrant types. Well, we, we can't do it. It's the, it's the square narrative fitting in a round hole or something. You can't quite frame these Africans that way. You know, it's the American tale with Fievel you, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's supposed to be a kind of triumphal story, right, of the human spirit. But, you know, so it might as well be Philip throwing up his hands going, yeah, how are we going to make sense of this? You know, quit trying or something. But how we make sense of it and how Gwen Hall made sense is by telling the truth. Right. That despite all these burdens, all this inhumanity, that these are a resourceful and resilient people. They're not orphans from history. And they weren't marginal to the process. Mm -hmm. For a hundred years before Andrew Jackson, the only thing that makes Jefferson desire New Orleans in the first place is that this place exists because of what African people have been able to salvage of their own humanity, their own dignity, their own histories as a story of survival in the face of brutality, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, what, what I'm arguing for here, you know, my friend, is that as we 
revisit these narratives, you know, that as we look particularly at these narratives of power, as you called them, legitimizing narratives, that we see, uh, you know, the bigger story, yes. the less bordered story. Not, not just to, you know, make people somehow feel included or something. I that's certainly part of what these stories do. But because this is what happened. Yes. This is the foundation. New Orleans doesn't appear de novo in 1815 with some character named Andrew <laughs> Jackson ready for his close-up. It was a hundred years of twisted, sordid, cruel machinations of empire that nevertheless sees a people, in this case an African people, specific peoples of specific traditions and histories in Africa, whose identities are every bit as vivid as those of the pilgrims, you know, and those other celebrated immigrant groups, but whose story becomes so twisted according to those legitimizing narratives that they're essentially, what, they're essentially marginal. Erased, yeah. It's, it's time, yeah, erased. It's, it's time to fix that because in those stories, I think we understand how we end up you know, with people arguing about critical race theory, how we end up with George Floyd last May, mm. you know, a year ago, uh, how we continue in a Groundhog Day fashion to search for a way out of this racial conundrum that is at least partly kept alive by these, um, you know, by these, by these, you know, these doctored, doctored narratives. And, and as, as we finish up here, I think, you know, the lesson of all this is that we all just need to be more attuned to narrative because it's this fundamental way that humans communicate uh, how we get across information, how we get across ideas. And as you were just suggesting, they're so tied into, you know, the, these levers of power. And, and so as we construct our own narratives, we tell our own stories, we want to be sure that we're not just, you know, using the lessons that power taught us to tell stories that, you know, maybe contend with, with the narrative, but don't necessarily go against it we want to create competing vi uh, visions of what history has been and who we are and the, the more we do that i think that the better the healthier uh we will be as as a people um and as as individuals as well uh, i couldn't set it better myself and and i think you'll agree with me that uh, as we move forward this summer with the guests we have scheduled and uh, we have some good ones coming yes. folks uh and the stories we tell that that will be our driving interest. See you next time. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking a cycle so we